This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour of podcasting greatness here on YouTube with uh, audio on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and where all good podcasts are sold. Hey, everybody. You can see I am joined this week by my beautiful wife, Melissa. Hello. We are very happy. We, the royal we, (laughs) what is this, mouse in my pocket, are very happy that she is here joining us today. We are doing this right before we are doing our Critical Conversation show. We are recording this. Uh, So you'll, so for those of you who are watching the podcast on Saturday and I saw or caught our show yesterday, you'll see us in the same setup and outfits or whatever. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two wildly different topics, though. This this podcast is going to be on the topic of double binds. Double binds. And this is a uh, term that comes out of communication, anthropology, psychology. It's used uh, to talk about how you can be hemmed in by rules, guidelines, contradictory catch-22s, and how these can be used as, is, as tools of coercive control. These can be used as tools of manipulation and, of course, um, confusion. Lots and lots of confusion connected with these things. Mm -hmm. And I asked Melissa to help me today with this because when I was talking to her about the podcast, she immediately piped in uh, today with examples and ideas of of how these work. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm not the only one who's uh, (laughs) read up or been familiar with or have experienced these things. And the fact of the matter is that they surround us all the time at so many different levels. And in so many ways, um, our day-to-day life is ruled by double binds of one kind or another. So this is, I don't want you guys to watch this with the idea that this is some strange thing that only goes on in Scientology, although I am going to give you Scientology examples to give really loud out there examples. We're definitely going to talk about that stuff. But I really want you guys to, to, to take this information to heart And look at how it might apply in your own life, because like I said, we are all surrounded by these in various, various ways. And Melissa and I will talk about some of those examples of that. Now, I want to first open this podcast, now that I've kind of introed with that, with a question that a viewer sent me for my Q&A show that actually prompted doing this podcast this way today. It's actually an answer to this question, and um, this is from Patricia. Hi, Patricia, out Hi, there. Hi, Patricia. And she says, <laughs> uh, here is her very long question, and it, the question itself will also help explain uh, what we're talking about today. So here we go. I was wondering if in Scientology you also had the manipulation technique of double messages, Let me explain what I mean by that. For example, the tyrannical pastor of the church, quote unquote, I attended, would have us fast every Wednesday, and we had a prayer meeting to pray for needs of the church in general worldwide and for the salvation of people that are not believers in Christ. So that seems like a big act of love and sacrifice for other people that are not of your group, quote unquote, right? However, she would make a sarcastic, humiliating, and intimidating comment every time I had contact with my family, like going to visit or spend time on the phone with them, or if I was still friends with people who were not in that church. 
So how do you integrate this extravagant display of love on the one hand and just the incessant remarks to make you extricate yourself away from people who love you and, in theory, need to be shown the love of God? She said that we all should depend on God and not on her for decisions in our lives. But I remember one time that she called me out of the blue and with the most overbearing attitude told me, why don't you call me? Do you know everything already? I was caught totally unawares and I didn't understand why she was calling me and telling me that when she was always complaining that she had so much work to do, having to attend to her house, her family, and the church, that it was in her house. I mean, we saw each other three times a week at church, sometimes even four. What she meant about knowing everything was things about the Bible or just spiritual things in general. She would tell us that she should be independent in our, that we rather should be independent in our, in our relationship with God. And on the other hand, she would tell us that if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't be well off spiritually at all. That she was the one to bring us the real life in God. So much for humility, right? I think this double message technique is what confuses the mind of the person and prevents her from thinking straight because you have two contradictory statements and behaviors that make your mind go in circles and not be able to come to a conclusion and think logically and straight. In a way, I think it's a tactic designed to render you powerless, passive, and captive to the will of the master manipulator. I don't know if you could ever comment on this or explore it further. I feel it's a tactic that disarms you. It makes you put your defenses down and blame yourself for the lack of congruence that you are experiencing. It makes you feel that you should figure out the answer, but you're stuck. You keep giving the manipulator the benefit of the doubt because after all, you see the good things that she does and therefore she must be right. And you are not understanding the harshness she has to use in order for you to realize how much she's sacrificing and giving away just for your good, just because she is a servant of God. Anyway, I'd love to hear your take or experience on this. And also, if you know whether this is a common practice among so many totalitarian, authoritarian, tyrannical leaders. Okay, so that was the uh, very long question from Patricia, where she actually demonstrated in an extremely insightful way, coming up with all of that herself, exactly what the double bind technique is. Um, and it is using contradictory complaints or information or data, anything you can get across. You don't even have to use words. It can be insinuated. It can be understood it can be a un, um, unspoken consequence of an action, you know, well, if you do that, dot, 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 right? It doesn't have to even be spelled out for you in order for you to feel hemmed in. Mm -hmm. uh, cult expert Yanya Lalich, one of my heroes, uh, discusses bounded choice. Is a, is a whole theory and model she put together that, that 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 where this is prominent, where the idea that you are hemmed in and that you don't have choices, that your choices are limited arbitrarily. We really want to stress here that this is about these are not necessarily true things. They can be. They don't necessarily have to be. Um, it's really rough when they are true. Mm -hmm. because then you're even kind of more stuck. But we'll talk a little bit about 
uh, solutions for these things too, uh, in terms of how one can go about dealing with these things. Um, now to get a little, not technical, but just get a little bit more into some stuff I looked up on this, um, this does, this is the subject of its own Wikipedia page, and this comes from the work of a man named Gregory Batson, who I have found out just today in, in diving into this topic, what a kindred spirit I have in this man. He died in 1980. He was an anthropologist, and uh, the double-bind concept is something he and, and his uh, colleagues came up with. As, a, as studying at the time, this was in the 1970s, I believe, um, schizophrenia and trying to figure out what was behind it. And it might well be that there are social or cultural or double-bind psychological factors driving the seemingly insane, quote-unquote, behavior of the schizophrenic and the wild mood swings and everything else connected with it. Yes, there are definitely theories. This is not something that is well explored. Uh, so I am not making any truth claims right now. I am merely saying that it is possible that this double-bind concept has a lot to do with our mental health. And, mm -hmm. you know, that of schizophrenics, if it's going to affect a schizophrenic, guess what? It can affect you and me, too. Exactly. <laughs> right. Okay, so that's where some of this comes from. And you might hear me in the future discuss more from Gregory Batson because I am nothing but um, um, completely impressed by, by him and his work. But let me read this to you um, from my notes here. And this is, uh, this I believe I just took this straight from the Wikipedia page. A double bind is a dilemma in communication in which an individual or group receives two or more conflicting messages with one negating the other. In some circumstances, particularly families and relationships, this might be emotionally distressing. This creates a situation in which a successful response to one message results in a failed message to the other and vice versa, so that the person will automatically be wrong regardless of how they respond. Mm -hmm. The double bind occurs when the person cannot confront the inherent dilemma of these two contradictory things and therefore can neither resolve it nor opt out of it. Um, this was first instituted, oh, this was in the, from the 1950s, is what it says here, and they are often utilized as a form of control without open coercion. The use of confusion makes them difficult both to respond to and to resist. And I looked up another article here to give even, even more about this before we get into launching into some examples of this. Um, this is from Psychology Today, and I put a link to this article in our show notes today. The double bind, quote, this is the, from the article, the double bind is applicable not only to psychology and Zen teachings, it is also relevant to two situations in today's world, the global double bind and the social double bind. The global double bind is this. On the one hand, we want to preserve our natural environment. On the other hand, everything we do to grow our economy and preserve our standard of living disrupts the natural environment and our relationship with it. Batson suggested or suggests that we must raise our consciousness and learn to think in new ways to escape from that ecological double bind. As Einstein said, 
no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. I think that's a pretty smart quote right there. Like the monk in the Zen story, we must elevate our thinking to a new level and take action to prevent environmental disaster. So you see the double bind. And these are true statements. These are not falsities. These are not coercive control statements. These are, hey, we're in a bit of a bind here. Mm And, and, it's, and it's the necessities and, and uh, dictates of our culture and our society that create the double bind. So the only way we solve it is to rise above this and look at it from a whole different perspective. This is what thinking outside the box and thinking outside the envelope are all about, is solving these kind of dilemmas, these kind of problems. Um, now, to get into how, this, how else this works in life... Um, I'm going to let my wife here, uh, have a say. <laughs> okay. I was trying to think of some examples. Um, I was thinking kind of like what the lady was saying in her question to you. One I see that does that with the two different messages. A lot is with politicians where they're like, oh yeah, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do everything for you. We're going to do it great. And then they get into office and they're like, nah, you can do it by yourself. Well, exactly. Or even worse, they feed you some bullshit excuse as Mm -hmm. to why they can't get done what they said they were going to get done. And then you're stuck supporting this guy because you gave, you know, you voted, you vote. Excuse me. That's right. You can't take your vote back. So you're stuck having approved of this man right now. You're backing him. You endorsed him. You promoted him on social media. You retweeted his tweets. You're following him. You're suggesting other people do. And now here he is letting you down, Mm -hmm. you know, but and letting you down by putting some bullshit down that is completely contradictory to what he said before that he would be able to do. And this sticks you can can stick you in this problem. And, you know, you don't have to make a round peg fit a square hole on this. There's lots and lots of ways to look at this. It is really a matter of the catch 22. Mm -hmm. And um, you can go deeper. Batson talks deeply about this as a concept. And there are different levels that this exists at. And real double binds have to do with contradictions at different levels of, of understanding, which is kind of a deeper subject than I wanted to get into in the podcast today. But I want to let you guys know. If you look into this, you'll find deeper philosophy underlying this. Really interesting stuff about systems work, about cybernetics, about genetics, about well, you know lots of stuff that Batson got his hands into and was working with other people on in the 1950s and 60s all the way through until he died in 1980. And um, and this double bind work is is uh, it's just it's so interesting how broadly applicable it is. Because Batson himself took care to try to work in a very, I guess we could say, interdisciplinary way. He sort of eschewed disciplinary approaches because of the fact that they themselves could limit your thinking or understanding Mm -hmm. of a broader picture that you're looking at. If we forget that we're framing when we look at things from a particular vantage point, we see, it's fine to do that. We have to do that. But... If we, we can't for- not do that. Well, exactly. Yeah. But if we forget, you know, I'm a psych major right now. I'm looking at things through a psychological lens for obvious reasons. But if I forget, excuse me, and I start thinking this is the only lens mm-hmm. to look through things, 
when in fact there is a sociological lens, there is a neurological lens. Uh, Sapolsky talks about this with his buckets, buckets of knowledge or buckets of information and how you can approach a problem from, you know, from a certain, looking at it from a certain bucket or point of view. Mm -hmm. But if you forget that that's what you're doing and you think that's the only way or you think that's the most important way even, you can lose the plot because the, the systems of our existence are a bit more complicated than that. That was your philosophy for the week. Well, <laughs> and you also have to remember you may have a lens that someone else doesn't. Like you have the psychology lens because you're studying that. But somebody that's never studied psychology or even been to therapy is not going to know that certain things. That's right. That's exactly right. And, um, and these, so these, these things can, you know, can bind us. So to be unbound, <laughs> I thought we might talk about how this is used in coercive control specifically, because, of course, that's my main thrust of, of attention and and, uh, and what I talk about here. And double binds are rampant in destructive cults and in domestic violence situations or interpersonal, inter intimate partner violence situations. You um, run into these, right? Have to, can't, mm -hmm. must, must not. Uh, directives and, and situations, right? Where, um, you know, okay, you can't leave the house. That's your punishment today. Yeah. But there better be food on the table tonight and the, and the refrigerator's empty, <laughs> right? So there better, you, you, you better get to figuring this out. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you guys, and and uh, if you watched my podcast last week where I was monologuing about, you know, the, the last onion layer I stripped off here about this, I was talking in some ways about how I was faced with these contradictory problems or data from my Scientology experience and my psych studies. And, um, and uh, you know, Hubbard littered Scientology with double binds. I mean, I've talked about the contradictory nature of Scientology many, many, many times. And, um, and these, these, you know, the, the, the thing that is so difficult for me to, to talk about this is I clearly remember um, the, the kind of the, the feeling of psychosis that these could generate in my mind when I was under the gun in a, in a Scientology Sea Org environment to comply with orders and directions we were receiving. You know, um, it's, it's fairly obvious. You can see how there could be problems with um, eight years of my life as a manager in uh, overseeing all of the Scientology delivery in the Western United States. My job was to get somebody else to do things by sending them telexes, sending them or written orders and directions. And they were supposed to have, you know, days to comply with this stuff, weeks even. And we were judging statistically, we were watching the statistics, watching our graphs and the numbers and everything on a longer three-week basis. We were not operating in theory. <laughs> On a week-to-week, day-to-day, you know, this was how management, when you read Hubbard's words, this is how it's supposed to run. It's supposed to be fairly chill. It's supposed to be fairly, you know, stepped back from the situation that you're managing. And it's supposed to be like you're the quarterback giving them some help, some direction, or you're the coach 
And maybe the, the executive director of the organization or the division head I was talking to is like the quarterback, and I'm trying to coach them along, and they're the ones who are actually calling the plays, doing the work, getting the stuff done. That's kind of, in theory, how you read about how Scientology management is supposed to occur when you're a Scientology Sea Org member. Then you hit the ground and you find out what it's really like, which is if you don't have an answer to this telex in one hour, you're going to be scrubbing pots tonight. But you can't call the orgs on the yeah. phone and demand that they answer the telex you just sent them. So instead, it has to be your intention. Now, get this. Over this eight years that I worked in Scientology as a Sea Org manager, I had, I was told by the people who ran the communications, actually processed all the telexes and everything, they were called external comm, um, that group of people monitored, you know, the answer rate of telexes, and I had the best answer rate of any manager in that entire building. I would craft telexes. I would word them well enough, often enough, that people would feel that they should respond to my communications more often than anybody else. And maybe 75% of my telexes were answered. Wow. Right? And um, maybe I would get an answer Oh, the rules, by the way, the, the telex uh, policy is you have 24 hours to answer a telex. This is what the staff at the other end are told. I send a message, you've got 24 hours to get me an answer back. Preferably with compliance to the order I've sent, but sometimes orders are going to take longer. So I send the telex and I am told by the 15-year-old girl standing over me who's never managed anything in her life, but now she's a CMO messenger, so she knows everything and I don't know anything. And she tells me, I've got one hour to get compliance to that order. Better get to it or I'm going to be scrubbing pots that night. And if you put yourself in my chair with all the rules I just laid out to you, you can see how this order, which is delivered with intensity and force, and and it is there is it's not an option. This is this is a person standing over me, yelling at me, telling me this is how my life is now, right? I'm going to be punished if I don't get this done, and I have no means with which to get it done. Nor do I have any policy backing up from L. Ron Hubbard that I can get it done. I can't call an org, and even if I could call an org, I can't tell the staff member, you got one hour to answer that, because the staff member will rightfully reply back. But the policy says I have 24 mm -hmm. hours. Mm -hmm. I don't care! And this is where all the yelling and screaming comes from, right? Because you can be sure that that 15-year-old girl, who may or may not know much of anything about my job, is also in the same kind of bind. She has read the same policies and she might or might not, or she might have. And even if she does know, it doesn't matter because her senior's ordering or her. Yeah, not her, yeah. Right? You better get that Shelton guy to get that compliance today, right? And so she's like, oh God, I've got today to do it. So I'm going to order him to get his answers, you know, in an hour. And and so the the abuse just rolls on down the hill. It's kind of the picture I'm trying to paint for you guys here of how this, you know, there's a real world example of how this works. And over the course of eight years of working just in management in the Sea Org, 
this was a daily, multiple times a day occurrence. I gotta get. I really want to get you guys to understand that this is not once in a blue moon. We got it. We got you know bent over a barrel. It was all day, every day with this. And I can tell you from personal experience <laughs> that <laughs> as stable and as strong as I tried to be, uh, years of that will wear you down uh, badly, very badly. It is excruciating. It's almost physically painful after a while because the headaches and the pressure and the tension uh, is... It's not quite like anything else. <laughs> and I know I'm not alone in this. I'm only citing these examples to, to, to highlight how this works. But I'm sure everybody listening here, if you put your thinking cap on, can, can think of examples of how this applies in your life. And what you have to do in order to get out of it. Now, I'm going to go over some other examples from Scientology. Did you have any other points you wanted to make on this while I was looking those up? None of the Scientology. I was thinking earlier about um, some double binds and it was like in, in religion, you know, like mm. what they tell you in religion. That's where I was thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. About Scientology. But yeah. Like, um, you know, the you have free will, but God has a plan or like that's got to be disorienting. And then. The other one is God has a plan, but you can pray to him to make it different, I guess. Uh, yes, actually, <laughs> that's a really good point, actually, because the whole God is a plan thing is, you know, is it's, also it's set in stone, you know, that's, but that's right. <laughs> actually, this I'm really glad you mentioned that because this uh, brings to mind for me another point to highlight is that um, these double binds can be created by thought stopping cliches. And those are the ones that are really going to drive you nuts because mm -hmm. you can't think your way through them. God has a plan. It might be a tenet of your faith, and I am in no way telling you that God doesn't have a plan. Right. However, it's not so helpful to hear that and be stuck not knowing what to do when you have a very real life problem. You just lost your job, let's say or your spouse just died, mm -hmm. or something horrible just happened. And you got to cope with that. You got to deal with that now. And you're given this thought-stopping cliche that's supposed to make you feel better? Yeah. And it's like... What? I'm glad he has a plan, but... Can his plan be like so? I don't have this sucky stuff going on, right? Like, like what is there? Like, like what plan is it that I'm supposed to lose my job and 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 endanger my family? <laughs> How is that part of some master plan of of goodness and wonderfulness? You know, it's not so helpful. And like I said, you can't really think your way through it. What are you supposed to do? Go ask God about his plan? Well, what is mm -hmm. the plan? And how do I fit into it exactly? And I mean, it just stops the thinking. So, just one example of that. Now, I'm going to give you some others. Feel free to pop in on okay. any others that you think of along the way here. Um, I've got four from Scientology. First one is this uh, is a very fundamental one. Actually, it imbue it sort of uh, it infects the entire culture of Scientology from public staffs, Sea Org, all of it. And this is uh, two concepts. One is called the spirit of play. 
where Hubbard wrote uh, or talked in 1952 about this thing called the spirit of play, which is basically being silly, being what he called insouciant, not having a care in the world, you know, why so serious? It's not, you know, the world, the, the, the universe is a universe where you should be, treat it like a playground. Treat this universe as a playground and you'll have a better correct view of it than if you think it's this really solid, serious, heavy duty, you know, affair that you have to get all thinking and, and serious about, right? This was Hubbard's attitude in 1952, talking about this. And the spirit of play infects all of Scientology, and they use it in a really corrupted, kind of sick way to fake smiles and happiness and joy. You know, when you're exhausted and you're in these double binds of you better make the money or else, right, kind of thing, when you're in these situations where you can't get out of them, it's really you trying to make the best of, a, of, a, of an awful situation and dredging up the spirit of play, but they do it that way. But the data is the data, and the data is, very, is not about faking it till you make it. Hubbard doesn't say that. He says you should have this very bright, open, wonderful spirit of play, and, and the universe, he says, will surrender to a spirit of play. You just Things will start going right for you if you're just not serious about stuff. If you just toss off ideas, they'll just magically happen. It's, it's total magic. But this is the spirit of play. Okay, so that's one end of this thing. Now, the other end is you go, okay, well, that sounds fun. That's, you know, Scientology should be fun. Scientology should be exciting. It should be, you know, a, a joy mm -hmm. to practice and exercise. This is, this is, and we were even told that one time by uh, Miscavige from the stage. So it's, so it, it gets around this piece of information. But then right on the heels of that, right behind that, you're going to get slapped with this. Keeping Scientology working. And Keeping Scientology Working is, is the name of a policy letter that L. Ron Hubbard wrote where he, and I did a two-video, two-part video breaking it all down for you guys as far as like how unbelievably insane that, that policy letter is. But in there, he specifically says that this is a, Scientology is a deadly serious activity. Only, you know, he says this universe is, it, it, it makes it, you know, the, the social veneer makes this universe seem mild, but it's not mild. It's very dangerous. It's rough. And only the tigers survive. And even they have a hard time. This is what Hubbard says in Keeping Scientology Working. So you're presented with this paragraph of, we don't have any infinity of time to get the job done. The, the past or the future on this planet could make the past look like a holiday. This is a deadly serious activity and we better have our noses to the grindstone and we better be working our asses off. And then Tom Cruise follows this up at his acceptance speech for his Freedom Medal of Valor by saying, when my head hits the pillow every night, I make sure I've done everything I can for Scientology, which is total horseshit, by the way. Yeah. You know, give me a break. Uh, but... You know, you get this kind of deadly, serious, KSW-minded idea. And these two things exist in Scientology together at the same time. And yes, you can imagine, if you're imagining right now trying to reconcile these two things in the same instant of time and trying to be deadly serious while having a spirit of play, you can understand the cognitive dissonance that I used to experience on a daily basis. 
because that's the kind of crazy making stuff that you have to sort of make make sense is I'm supposed to be insouciant and non-serious and happy and joyous, but this is a deadly serious activity and I can't fuck around. Pardon my French. This is crazy making. And both of these can be used against you at any moment in time by any senior executive who decides that they just don't like the look of you or they just don't like your attitude or they just don't like the way you're talking to them or looking at them. And so they'll bust you for one or the other of these. It's always an option. See, the great thing about the double binds is no matter what you're doing, the guy in charge can always, uh, you know, beat your chops about that, right? Well, and that's how a lot of, especially corporate jobs work too, is like, oh, we want to make the workplace more fun, but uh, you also need to work the amount that three people work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And then if you don't, will fire you or demote you or make you some other thing, you know? So that's, that's that way in a lot of jobs. Yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a cultural sort of, you know, it's a, it's an attempt to influence the culture of a group. And, you know, it, it's not a hit at people who are honestly trying to make a bad thing good or try to help mm -hmm. relieve a condition or a situation it's how, you know, it, this has a lot to do with unintended consequences, too. I'm talking about coercive control and cults, but let's, you know, let's not forget that a lot of the double binds that we experience in life are organically sort of naturally created. They mm -hmm. weren't put there out of malice. Right. When we're talking about, you know, intimate partner violence, when we're talking about coercive control, destructive cults, human trafficking, bad stuff. You know, when we're talking about criminality, now we're talking about, you know, malicious double binds. We're talking about uh, evil. Really. Right. Like in an abusive relationship, a lot of people always ask, why don't people leave abusive relationships? And it's never that easy because you have that double bind of, well, you stay and you get hurt. But if you leave, dude might kill you. Exactly. Or you leave <laughs> and what happens to the kids? Yeah, what happens to the kids? What happens? Maybe a guy comes after the rest of your family. Exactly. So, you know, you could you could literally have a double bind of I'm going to beat you or I'm going to beat the kids. Mm -hmm. Your choice. Right. Well, you're screwed either way. I mean, there is no it's a no win scenario. And if you imagine these things that way, you'll see it's not just contradictions. It's a created binding situation. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and I think everybody's tracking with this. Uh, here's another one is in Scientology. Uh, you are always responsible for your own condition. Spiritually, personally, psychologically, bodily, economically, right? Financially, you are responsible if something bad happens to you, if something good happens to you, if anything happens to you, you pulled it in, quote unquote, you are the one who somehow, through some way, you're the causative agent of all the factors of your life. This is a fundamental principle of Scientology. It's universal. It applies across the boards. It's an early piece of information, again, coming out of 1951. Uh, so it's been with Scientology for a very long time, right? Almost from the beginning. 
And um, and all Scientologists are indoctrinated at this at all levels, public staff, Sea Org. So uh, this is on one end, and on the other end is uh, Dianetics and Scientology auditing, which basically say that the reason for all of your personal problems, mental health issues, turmoil, upset, anxiety, stress, all of it, is because of your engrams. And your engrams are other people or things doing things to you. Your engrams are times when you experienced pain and unconsciousness. <laughs> That's what makes it an engram. Now, you can hurt other people, and those are aberrative too, but Hubbard doesn't say that it's all you're doing that caused all the trouble. It's what was done to you. And this is actually one of the things that made Dianetics wildly popular in 1950 and moving forward because people basically believe that, that the reasons that, you know, bad things that, that, they're, that they're having issues or troubles or upset is because of all the bad things that have happened mm -hmm. to them. It may or may not be true. It might not have any truth connected with it at all. We could have all kinds of other reasons why. Well, I think the truth lays somewhere in the middle. It's obviously not always all your own fault, but it's always—it's not always somebody else's fault either. It depends on what you're talking about, what the situation is, you know, what they did to you. I mean, yeah, if someone attacked you physically and hurt you, that's going to stick with you and, and be something that is long lasting and, and will have a lifelong effect. But if someone just walked up to you and called you a name and walked off, that probably won't affect you forever and ever. <laughs> How dare you bring sense and sensibility to my <laughs> provocative statements? <laughs> I was trying to make, I was trying to generate some nasty comments on <laughs> about, about all that. Cause you're absolutely right. It, mm -hmm. it, it is, it's, it's both. Yeah. But when you create a situation where it's one or the other, yeah. And it's like, well, how is this reconcile? How is this supposed to work? Again, you have to, it's not that you or I or anybody doesn't have an imagination and can't apply our imagination and our, and our faculties to try to resolve these things. The, the, the harm or the damage and the, and, the, and the mental anguish that this generates, though, is, is our attempts to do that in the face of it's just not logical. It just doesn't really make sense. And we have to twist our heads into pretzels to make it make sense, which really means it's not making sense. Right. You know, it's like Swiss cheese trying to get it in there and mm -hmm. it just doesn't quite work, you know. So it's not a matter of, you know, if I'm giving you guys examples of this, I'm telling you that these are things that were actually that are that are not one offs. These aren't, you know, little examples. These are cultural values in the world of Scientology that bind people into these crazy-making situations where they can't really get out or can't, can't figure their way through them. And that's the, that's the, there, and there's a control factor there, if you can see that, how if you can confuse somebody, but you're the source of their solutions to their problem, you're the cult leader, you're the, the head of household in the Gothard world, right? You're the, um, the one in charge and people are looking to you for the answers and the answers you're giving them are confusing. Well, they're going to be stuck. That itself is a bit of a double bind because you're the authority figure, but the authority and, and, and orders and directions you're giving don't make any damn sense. Mm -hmm. And it's going to stick them. And it's, and it's weird how confusions 
are like glue for us. We stick to them. This is why mysteries are so popular with people because they, they want the answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they want it to make sense. And as long as a thing doesn't make sense, we're kind of stuck to it. It takes more effort to break away. I can't explain why that is. I just know it's true. That's my Bill Maher mm-hmm. moment. But okay, let's do uh, let's do two more, and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap up. Here. All right. Okay. Um, and you guys, I hope you guys are enjoying these because these are these Scientology ones. This is the stuff I had to oh man live with. Communication is the universal solvent, Hubbard said. It dissolves all things. And this was actually the first double bind I ever spotted for myself as a, after I got out of Scientology. This was, this was one of the first things I went, oh my God, right? So communication is the universal solvent. It dissolves all things. In other words, Hubbard wrote a whole book called Dynetics 55 in 1955 about the subject of communication. It's the manual in Scientology for communication. And in there, he talked about a communication formula and he broke it all down and he talks chapters about this topic. And he said that with communication alone, you can resolve any conflict, any problem, any situation. Now, I don't know that that's true, but I thought that way for a very long time. And I do believe, uh, more so than other people I've met or encountered, that communication is a very, very powerful tool. And I do believe mm-hmm. that it is, um, and I, I believe in, in situations of conflict, you know, it should be the first and last stop to resolve those conflicts. I don't yeah. think, you know, violence is really the solution. No. Um, so that's a Hubbard piece of information, a very important one. I actually put that in clay. I had to memorize bits and pieces of that. I mean, this was really front and center for me. And by the way, I learned all this about communication when I was 15 years old. The very first course I ever did in Scientology that I really sunk my teeth into and and tried to practice was the communications course. So the double bind here is that, of course, in Scientology, you also have to avoid N-theta. And N-theta is a word in Scientology that describes or that is defined as bad news, bad reports, lies, upsetting things. Um, And they're upsetting because they're malicious and they're lies. They're not true. Theta is truth. N-theta are lies, right? It's kind of how it sort of is reduced down. Um, Theta is also the word for life force in Scientology. Uh, You know, theta is this sort of, you know, non-physical mass that, you know, imbues life. And, uh, and, and, And I'm a thetan and you're a thetan. That means we're made up of this theta quantity or whatever. And N theta is the opposite of it. It's 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 mucky muck. It's solid. It's hard. It's bad. It's awful. It's the opposite of of what is true and good. So N theta, in a practical sense, is let's say bad news about Scientology. Things I, Chris Shelton, talk about with Scientology. Scientologists think my entire channel is nothing but N theta. Now. Truth is a is a perspective, I guess, in some ways when it comes to opinions mm-hmm. and stuff. So they can see my channel as one way. I, of course, see it as the unadulterated truth about Scientology from my lived experience of it. Um, but, you know, so people can have differing views about this. But in the world of Scientology, it is a directive. It's not an option. 
that you avoid n theta about Scientology. You don't look at it, you don't read it, you don't get connected to it because it all comes from bad people like mm -hmm. me, SPs, a special people. So you avoid n theta. You cannot, in other words, communicate with it. Not with it or the source of it, such as myself. You have to disconnect. You can't be connected with it in any way. So how do these two things resolve, pray tell? Because they don't. These two things don't resolve at all. Communication can't be the universal solvent that solves all problems if you are directed that you cannot communicate in the most problematic areas of Scientology, the people who are attacking it or talking critically about mm -hmm. it, right? So Scientologists are literally in a double bind when, when faced with this problem of how to deal with it. They think, just like I did as a Scientologist, that they should be able to communicate and work it out. But the church comes down like a ton of bricks on anybody who tries to resolve N theta with the SPs. Can't have any of that. Right? So all they can do is have special people in their legal division, in their dirty tricks bureau, monitor us. But they can't communicate with us. They control us. They can hire private investigators to send us nasty grams and stuff like that. But Scientologists can't communicate with us. That's the rules, right? And, that, and them, them rules ain't made to be broken. You break those rules, they'll kick you out. So here you have this universal, wonderful idea that, you know, we can achieve world peace and happiness and joy through communication alone which is actually a kind of not bad idea, bound by this and contradicted by this entire other philosophy of disconnection and then theta. And again, this is crazy making. This is, this is affecting people's lives and how they live them. This isn't an academic ivory tower exercise for Scientologists. They, they have to live by these rules. And it makes them a bit nuts. Mm -hmm. And finally, one last one for you. Um, is, okay, um, on one hand in Scientology, in Dianetics and Scientology, is the concept or the idea that we are all aberrated, that we are carrying around with us decades, centuries, millennia of stress and trauma and anxiety, and all of that has accumulated, all that pain and unconsciousness has accumulated in mental mass, actual energy, that impinges on you. This is a physical universe reality. It is not a theoretical construct or a spiritual idea. Hubbard says this is physical. So this, this stress, this trauma, this pain you're carrying around with you is very real. And if it's re-stimulated, if you see something in your present time environment that approximates the conditions of a past trauma, it's gonna come up and rear its head and it's gonna hit you upside the head. It's gonna hurt you. And it's going to make you act in weird ways, right? Ways you don't want to. I was going to say, what's funny about that and a lot of other things that Hubbard said is he's like, almost gets it right. Because there is generational trauma. I mean, you know, if you look at the people that escaped the Holocaust and their kids and their grandkids, there's still trauma going on. Mm. You know, there's still 
anger and fear and everything. And that so that does happen. There is generational trauma, but it's not like some energy that, you know, goes into your brain or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, and that's half the thing with Scientology is a lot of Scientology is based on things you observe, empirical observations, mm -hmm. things you can see. It's Hubbard's explanations for them that are so insane, right? right? And can be so crazy making, and in some of these cases, double binding. In this case, so you have all this charge. Now, in Scientology, the word is charge. You have charge. He uses electrical terms, terminal, charge, circuit. He talks a lot in those terms in talking about the mind and in talking about... Um, this accumulated stuff. The other word that they use for it in Scientology is your case. It's your case is what you're carrying around with you. And as you go up the bridge, as you do more and more Scientology and get more and more auditing, your case goes from this gigantic, you know, thermonuclear bomb of energy hanging over you all day to it becomes smaller and smaller and smaller as you address it through the auditing and, and remove the charge and make it go away. Okay, that's the theory. However, for staff and public to some degree, but mostly for staff and especially for Sea Org, you don't have a case. You have no case. No more. It's not that we're going to pretend you don't have a case. It is... You just have to decide you don't have one today. So here's this overwhelming, overpowering, mind-destroying case that you've been carrying around with you all this time that you're still creating even today that has, that has subconscious control of you, your vocal cords, your actions, your deeds, your words. And yet we're all supposed to pretend as staff members that we don't have a case at all and there is no case on post. And it's straight up denial. It's not, I will somehow deal with this and then we'll, you know, no, it's, it's you just don't have it. It just can't exist. And how this manifests, and I've made this example before because it's, it, it's, it's how it manifests for real, is let's say you're a Scientology staff member, or Sea Org member, and you um, report for post for you know for your job one day, but you received like devastatingly bad news that morning. Your mom just died or some shit. I mean, something really devastatingly bad, right? Too bad. No case on post. Wow. I don't want to hear about it. You know, your senior legitimately now not all seniors will do this some of them had a little bit of a beating heart in their tin <laughs> chest right some of them had some compassion but it's not according to elron hubbard's policy that they have to hubbard's policy is crystal clear a staff member and sea org members have no case on post period when you are on post you don't have the luxury of having any Case, trauma, stress, any of it. So you're traumatized by the fact that your mom died this morning? Well, too bad. Suck it up. Get to work. Wow. Yeah. So how do these two things reconcile? It's crazy making. That's how they reconcile. You have to kind of 
step off the edge of a cliff in order to make any of it make any real sense. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole point. And by, again, introducing that confusion, stressing it, pounding it on your head, making it, you know, rubbing it in your face daily, you can be controlled. That's the simplicity of it, right? Because for whatever reason, whatever the situation is, you've accepted that this person's important, these pieces of information are true or important in some fashion, or, you know, when we, when we rise to the level, like we talked about with the ecology and, and climate change and our economy and stuff, these are just cultural truths. They're beyond any one individual. I can't change the fact that it, you know, that, that it costs money to buy things. We all agree to that. That's mm -hmm. why that is the way that it is. It's not because I think it or you think it. It's because we all think it. And we all are in double binds culturally. So that's a thing, too, uh, to pay attention to. And I think in terms of going toward a wrap-up on this episode, what I want to say is solutions on this are not obvious. Um, double binds are trap you by, by intent. They, they're designed to do mm -hmm. that when they are done in this malicious, controlling way, certainly. Um, and so it's not an easy trick, you know, to step out of it. Now, one way that, that of course, I stepped out of Scientology entirely, and that stepped me out of, those, out of some of those double binds immediately. I was no longer stuck in the double bind of, you know, no case on post versus, you know, uh, I have a case. Or was I? And that's the thing about these is they actually can stick with you even after you leave. Mm -hmm. And that's what these onion layers I've been talking about all this time are all about is taking those things apart. Right? I mean, that's what this is kind of about is, is, is stripping these things apart and, and breaking them down. So it requires, in other words, a fresh, different context and perspective. You got it. If anything, if there was any, if the, and and this, and I don't pretend that this is a universally simple solution. Okay, I'm I'm talking in broad terms right now. But if you can kind of lift your viewpoint above or out of the strictures of the double bind, that's when you can start seeing the bigger picture of what you're being bound in, and can start seeing where the double bind is coming from. Where are these values, these rules, these guidelines, these strictures? Who's saying this stuff? Where, why do I have to follow this? Who says this is true? Do I have to agree with this? What are the, you know, what are the consequences of stepping out of this? If it's your job, well, maybe it's your job. If it's your relationship, then, you know, stepping out of that might be stepping out of the relationship. It might instead also be redefining the rules of the relationship. You know, sitting down and going, hey, we got some issues and mm -hmm. we're going to have to deal with this. Now, obviously, with an abuser in a domestic situation, you're going to probably want some help. You know, third, this is why third parties come in and they try to, you know, bust these double binds up and show mm -hmm. that these are, no, this is arbitrary. You don't have to live your life this way. You can step out of this and we can help work out solutions. So it's not you or the kids, you know, like that's that really that's that's bad. That's not in a that's not a situation where you're necessarily going to resolve it with a guy. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe, you know, anything's, you know, lots of things are possible. But it requires that kind of stepping back and stepping out. 
in order to see all of it and the anatomy of it and then be able to process, okay, how can I look at this differently? And it could require a whole change in the entire system. It could require an entire paradigm shift. For me, that was hitting the eject button on Scientology entirely, for example. Just get the hell out of it. Now I'm not subject to those double binds anymore as I psychologically find and recover from them mm -hmm. and, and, you know, sort of spring them. That's when they mentally really are no longer there. But, you know, you can do that work. That's, that's the recovery work. That's, that's part of it. So anyway, that's, uh, that's what I have to say about that. I have really enjoyed your contributions this Thank week. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for doing this with me. You're welcome. And I hope you guys got something out of this and enjoyed this. It went on a little bit longer than I uh, than I thought we would be able to. So this is good. We got some good examples here. I would love to hear uh, from you guys as to examples you've run across in your life and how you've dealt with them. Uh, in the comments section, I think people will be illuminated by that, by your examples as well, because I can, I can talk about this stuff, but I learn from you guys too. And this, by the way, happens to be material that we just covered on my uni studies uh, in class, which is fascinating because it came up on a different line also. And uh, it came up in this question that, that uh, Patricia asked me. So, so Pat, I, this was for you. I hope that this uh, whole podcast answered your question and gave you some uh, more information about those double meanings you were asking about. And thank you very much for sending me that, that extensive and awesome question. Okay, guys, if you have, uh, well, let's see, uh, if you are enjoying my channel, we've turned that one on. If you're enjoying my channel, enjoying the show, and think this is something that should be supported, and of course, we, we feel this is oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, something that should be supported, then um, please check me out on Patreon. The link is below, uh, patreon.com slash Chris Shelton. Uh, or if you want to just do a one-off financial support, that would be awesome too. You can use the PayPal link below. I think it's paypal.us slash Chris J. Shelton or something like that. The link is there. And uh, I hope that you will share this podcast far and wide and help me grow my channel. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Goodbye.